I want to encourage you tonight to take your Bibles and turn to the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 32. Exodus 32, and we're going to begin reading shortly in verse 1. The title of this evening's message is Dancing Before the Golden Calf. Dancing Before the Golden Calf. And in order to talk about this, we need to think about the book of Exodus. And so in just a few minutes, best of my ability, I want to give you a snapshot or an overview of the book of Exodus. Uh, a basic outline of this book, I believe, can be built off of Exodus 7.16. The verse that is um, that's stated in Exodus 7.16 is actually a statement or a phrase that's that's repeated seven different times in the book of Exodus, as well as other times throughout uh, God's Word. And it's, let my people go that they may serve me. And so we can actually divide the book up based on that verse. And so chapters 1 to 18, the people of God experience the deliverance of God. And they are experiencing the deliverance of God. And that's what let my people go means. He delivered his people from bondage. And it becomes the picture, it becomes a symbol of what God does in salvation throughout the rest of the Bible. Is when he delivers you and me, he is setting us free from our former masters. So God raises up a deliverer in the first six chapters and we read about Moses. And then in verses 7 through 11 we read about this encounter between Pharaoh and between Moses. And actually between Pharaoh and God. And then in verses 12 through 18 we see how God delivers his people. So that's the first part of the book. The second part of the book, living under the reign of God, covers chapters 19 to 31 and verses 35 to 40. Let my people go. Why? That they may serve, that they may worship me. And so there are two parts or two main things that take place in the rest of the book of Exodus. One has to do with the covenant. How does God prepare people for himself? And the rest has to do with the tabernacle. How does God dwell among his people? And that was a real problem when you consider that he is a holy God and that we are not a holy people. So how does a holy God dwell among an unholy people? Let's talk about the covenant for just a moment. Uh, the discussion of the covenant really covers chapters 19 through 24, but the heart of it is in chapter 19, verse 4. And just listen to what he says. This is God speaking to his people. They have just arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai, and this is what God says. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And so they consented to that covenant that they would obey God's voice. And, and in chapter 20, God gives them the Ten Commandments. And what you need to know about the Ten Commandments is that when God gave the Ten Commandments, he spoke them from the mountain to Moses. And the people could hear God speaking. And it was terrifying to them. Um, in... in um, in Exodus 19, verse 9, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. I mean, they'll, they'll know Moses didn't sit on top of the mountaintop in a cloud like the Smoky Mountains and make all this up. 
they heard the voice of God. Well, then God gave the basic laws. After chapter 21, um, there's a, a whole section, uh, chapter 24 all the way up to 31, where God is giving the basic laws. There's nothing particularly in there about the tabernacle. These are laws about how people relate to one another. These are laws about ceremonial purity and holiness. These are laws about, that reflect the way a holy God expects a holy people to live with one another. And so we, that follows the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 24, verse 3, it says, So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, here's what they said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. That's what they said. That is just as good as a signature at the bottom of a contract. They agreed to keep the covenant that God had proposed to them. So you need to remember that. They agreed to that. Now, the rest of the book has to do with the tabernacle. And in chapters 25 to 31, God does give a description of the tabernacle. You see, the problem was how can a holy God dwell among his people? And that's what, what God wanted to do. And, um, and so he had descended on top of the mountain, and he had manifested his presence. In verses 16 through 18, it says, Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So why the tabernacle? Well, you've got a God of glory who's on this mountain, and when he speaks, the people say, please don't let him do that again. We don't want him to speak to us. You, you, you talk to God, and we'll do whatever he says, but we don't want to hear that voice. It scared them to death. So what is the tabernacle about? Well, it's about moving the glory of God that was on the mountain and bringing the glory of the very presence of God among his people. God wanted a people for himself, but he wanted to be with them. He wanted to be in close proximity to them. But he had this incredible, awesome problem of the holiness of God had the potential to absolutely wipe out these people. They weren't even supposed to touch the foot of the mountain because of his holiness and, um, and his, the power of his presence. So the glory of the Lord in Exodus 24 is on the mountain. At the last few verses of, of the book of Exodus, Exodus 40, verse 34, listen. The tabernacle's been constructed. Everything that God said needed to be in the tabernacle has been put there. You've got a holiest of holies where no man can go, but once a year, the high priest goes on the Day of Atonement. There's an outer court or an outer uh, holy of holies, and they go in there in and out day by day. They offer incense, which represent the prayers of people. And then they have the sacrificial uh, equipment outside the tabernacle. And so all this has been set up. It was God's idea. It was God's design. The glory was on the mountain, but listen to Exodus 40. The tabernacle's finished. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You understand what just happened? God wanted to be with his people. And that glory that was on the mountain that scared everybody to death was now covering the tabernacle. 
Exodus 40, verse 36. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The presence of God is to lead his people. He doesn't intend for you to be led by simply receiving a set of directions through a mediator, a priest, preacher, whatever. He doesn't, doesn't intend for you to be led by signs in the sky or the heavens. His ultimate goal all along is that, that his presence would dwell with his people. And you know what he's got in the New Testament? He's got a Holy Spirit that now lives in your body, the temple of God. And, and with his presence in you, he has achieved what he's wanted. But he's not finished there. He wants a people for himself, a holy people, who will be absolutely responsive to him through his Spirit. And so we talked about the filling of the Spirit last week. We talked about the holiness of God, because we've got to understand, we can't trifle with this. The Holy Spirit is not a plaything. He's not there to help you just be a good person. He's helping you become a person who's absolutely riveted to the heartbeat of God. And that's his desire for you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to follow him. He wants you to fulfill the very purpose for which God made you. And that's his assignment. And so in the Exodus, we have this very clear picture of how God wants to come and dwell among his people. And, um, and the Old Testament tabernacle tells that story. Now, I'm going to pull a verse from the New Testament, and then we're going to um, ask a question and answer it, and then we'll be, we'll be done. Uh, Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Peter and John, who cowered in fear, I mean, Peter, little girl pointed at him by a fire, said, you were with him. He denied Jesus. He said, I don't know the man. Three times this happened. The girl said, oh, I saw you with him. Somebody else said, I saw you with him. He denied it. He cursed. He denied Christ. Scared to death. Trying to protect himself. That same Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and John, go out to the very steps of the temple of Jerusalem. They heal a lame man that everybody knows about. Jesus himself probably walked by that lame man hundreds of times. But his purpose was not fulfilled until Peter showed up. And Peter and them said, you know, the man was begging for gold and silver. You know that, that story? And, um, and Peter said, you know, gold and silver, I have none. But what I have, I give you. Rise up and walk. And that man, we sing songs about it, don't we? Leaping and dancing and praising God. I don't know the song. We used to teach it to our kids. And, um, and so that man was healed. And Peter was bold. And in the midst of the sermon that he preached, he says these words, Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You see, the heartbeat of the gospel, even in the book of Acts, was that God not only wants to save you, he wants to live in you. And the Holy Spirit of God, for every person that trusts in the name of Jesus, will come and live in them. So he says it. He says, this is the thing you want. This is the exciting thing. Yes, Repent, be converted, so that your sins may be forgiven. Repent and be converted, so that your sins may be forgiven. But why? So that you can go to heaven? It's not what he says, is it? 
Repent and be converted so that your sins can be blotted out. Why? So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The Holy Spirit, He comes to live in you. And, um, and He wants to refresh you. Peter uses a word for someone trying to catch their breath when he uses the word refreshing. Someone's almost suffocating. They can't catch their air. Have you ever been that way? You're so out of breath, you can't even catch your breath. And, and when you get your breath back, he calls that refreshing. And some of us are suffocating, trying to do life without God. We have missed what his purpose was in saving us in the first place. Did not understand that it wasn't about all the rules. The rules were a means to an end so that he could live in you and dwell in you and lead you and love you and you could experience his presence and times of refreshing. Not one time, not two times, multiple times. A refreshing can come from what? The presence, the presence of the Lord. What a blessing. Now throughout church history, when the church was losing ground, when the church was not moving forward, there have been moments where God would come and there would be this incredibly thin place between earth and heaven and God would come and manifest his presence to his people. And people in the presence of God, as we have seen this morning and even tonight, people in the presence of God are affected by his presence. They can't stand. They become increasingly sensitive to their own sin. In the presence of God, we can't lie. We can't be dishonest with him, and we really got to be honest with ourselves. And so when that happens, we have words to try to describe that. We call it revival most of the time. And it's a way of describing what happens to people in the presence of God. And we could talk about the phenomena of revival. I could talk about it for hours, all those amazing things that happens when God comes and manifests his presence. But the bottom line is this. When God manifests his presence, everything that happens is us responding to the presence of God. Everything that happens can be explained by that. Simply what happens to people when God manifests his presence. Now, you and I live in a nation, a country right now, where we are losing ground. Where we are seeing incredible erosion in the Christian church. And I've spouted those stats. I'm going to share a few more of them. In a few weeks, when we start talking about sharing our faith, is one of the, the disciplines lost in the American church. But, but right now, just listen to this. A report just came out this week. Southern Baptist Convention is meeting this week in Columbus, Ohio. And um, the report just came out. Baptisms have gone down again. That's 15 years in a row. Our baptisms right now, the amount of people we're baptizing annually is, is less than happened before 1950. And, um, and no, one, no one seems to be terribly discouraged by it except preachers. But it should be disturbing to us, all of us, that that's happening. In Arkansas, only about one in four church members can be found in a church building on Sunday morning. Only about one in four, 26%. That's true of Southern Baptists anyway. If you took all denominations together, every flavor of Christian that you can think of, and you counted how many were in church on Sunday only 14% of the population of Arkansas is in church on Sunday. 14. That means 86% of the people you see in Arkansas are not in church. Now, it's not about just church attendance. We know that. It's about the gospel and Jesus coming to live inside us and change us. But doesn't that bother you? Doesn't that disturb you? 
And shouldn't there be a way that we ought to be engaged in asking God to come? Asking Him to come and manifest His presence, to move our hearts, stir in us. Not just get busy and go work, work, work. But God, come. Do a work in me. Do a work in us. Do a work in my church. Do a work in my community. Not just in our church, but in all the churches that preach Jesus. Shouldn't that be our heart cry? We need a mighty revival that I believe can only come from the presence of God. So the question tonight is this. How can God's people live without the presence of God? How can that happen? Now, we could speculate how it happens. It's happening to us. I I fear that very few people in our generation know what it is to be in the presence of God. It's happening to us. But, But how is that possible? How is it that the people of God can go on without the presence of God. Well, we don't have to speculate. It happened in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, Moses went up on the mountain in, in chapter 24. He has been up there for one week, two weeks, three weeks. Four. He's up there for 40 days and nights. They don't know what's happened to him. They don't know where he's gone. And uh, they're not a very patient lot. And so it says in Exodus 32, verse 1, Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron, that's Moses' brother, and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. How is it possible that people who have supernaturally been delivered from slavery, who have seen the army of Pharaoh drowned in the Red Sea. How could people who have seen a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, how could people who said, yep, that covenant will do it, how could people who have done all of those things fall so quickly into idolatry and absolutely abandon the presence of God? How does that happen? Well, number one, when we become preoccupied with human leaders, when we become preoccupied with human leaders. Why did the people turn so quickly? Well, the Bible says he was on the mountain 40 days and nights, but there was a basic loss of confidence in Moses. Notice in verse 1, the people gathered together to Aaron and said, Come and make us gods that shall go before us. But listen to what they said. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. They attributed the whole exodus to Moses. 
Everything that happened was Moses. The deliverance from Egypt, Moses. Parting the Red Sea, Moses. Everything was about Moses. A few years ago, I had the privilege of talking, having dinner several times with Avery Willis. Those of you who have been around a while will know that he wrote a discipleship uh, study called Master Life. Master Life was written overseas in Indonesia in the late 1960s. In Indonesia in the late 60s, revival came to a Muslim nation. Two million people came to faith in Jesus Christ in just a few years. People were being saved. Lives were being changed. Many reported miracles. Avery shared with me some of the things that he saw and witnessed that was just the power of God at work. And lay people would get the gospel and would carry it to another village and would share the gospel and people would be saved. Whole village would be saved. And then someone else would carry the gospel to another place or cross over to another island. And it was just incredible. Two million people. He came back. He was an IMB missionary, International Mission Board missionary, Foreign Mission Board missionary back then. And he came back and worked on his doctorate. And he did his dissertation on, on that revival. Uh, is, you know, because there were so many new Christians, he wrote Master Life in, in some of the languages in Indonesia so that people could be discipled in their walk with God. And so when the Sunday School Board, now Lifeway, decided to use that material, they had to back-translate it from a foreign language into English. And, um, and then it, it uh, was used greatly here in the U.S. He did his dissertation on it, and he, he gave me a copy, and I read it. And I asked him after we, when we met again later, I said, I said, Avery, help me understand, why did the revival stop? In your opinion, you've studied this, you lived it, you were there. Why did the revival stop? And he said this. He said, the clergy killed it. I said, wow, that doesn't feel good. <laughs> he said, the clergy killed it. Because people were worshiping. And uh, they weren't worshiping the way that Baptists thought Baptists ought to worship. And they were worshiping, and the Presbyterian pastor thought, well, that's not the way Presbyterians should worship. And they were worshiping together, and Methodists saw it, and they said, well, that's not the way Methodists, the Methodist pastor said, that's not the way they should worship. And so they started building fences around their people. And they said, oh, you're, you're Presbyterian, you've got to stay over in this box. You're Methodist, you've got to stay over in this box. And he said they literally strangled the revival. And the people listen to them. And by their focusing on their leadership, uh, they lost what God was doing. Pastors, who are supposed to be shepherds, increasingly are becoming saviors to people. The ones who are going to rescue our church from oblivion. And they're treated as much like CEOs as they are shepherds. And, um, you know, when a CEO doesn't make a difference on the bottom line, well, what do you do? Well, you get a new CEO. And then you've got church members and churches that act more like angry voters than God-called people of God. And, um, and you have churches functioning more and more the way the world would function and not the way that the Scripture describes the people of God. 
So when we become preoccupied with human leaders, beware. Beware that when we have superstars and millionaires that we absolutely adore. Beware when we exalt a man or a woman and we form cliques around that particular person. Beware falling into the danger that these people did of saying, well, we're not of Moses anymore. We're, we're of whatever God you're going to make up for us. Aaron, you're the man. And they applied such pressure on this brother of Moses that he absolutely blew it. Absolutely blew it as a man of God. Well, secondly, another reason people can live without the presence of God is when we reduce God to an intellectual discussion. An intellectual discussion. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 4, it's, Then they said, when they rolled out this calf, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. What Aaron tried to do was comprehend God in human terms, to define who he is from his perspective. Well, this is your God. And um, rather than what has God said about himself, what has God revealed to us about who he is? You know, I can sit around in a circle and we can collect our ignorance and say this is who God is. Or we can turn to the word of God and say, what does the Lord say about himself? What has he revealed about himself? And it's so important that we stay very close to the word of God. Not opinions, not, not tradition, but to the scripture. What has God said? That should be our goal. That should be our objective. But we can reduce him to an intellectual discussion. We can sit in Sunday school classes for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, and not know God any better. We can know some things with our head. And I can show you and help find something in the Bible, but I'm not necessarily walking with him or experiencing his presence. In worship services where we sing words of surrender and praise and then go out and we exhibit no surrender (laughs) and no praise, We have reduced God to an intellectual topic, and we have reduced his praise to meaningless uh, hymns. Jesus warned of this in Mark chapter 7, verse 6. He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Where's your heart tonight? Where's your heart tonight? Is it wrapped around the heart of God? Is it wrapped around his word? Are you thirsty and hungry to know him? And nothing less than the real thing. A third reason I believe that we lose the presence of God is when we confine God to a material realm. We confine God to a material realm. In verse 2 it says, He received the gold from their hand and He fashioned it. What kind of God is that that you can mold into your own image? He fashioned it with an engraving tool, made a molded calf, and then He said, This is your God, O Israel. He attempted to bring God down to our level. To bring God into this realm, to make God someone we can take care of and we can indirectly control. And this was the prevailing approach to God in their day. I mean, the whole business of idolatry was there must be a God that controls the rain. There must be a God that controls the weather. There must be a God that controls healing and sickness. There must be a God that does those things. And our job is to appease that God, that idol. And so they were just taking the common approach to God that they had been exposed to in Egypt, and they brought it to the worship of the one true God. Is it possible for Christians to do that? You bet it is. You bet it is. Let's make God less dangerous. Let's make God someone we don't have to tremble before him. Let's make him our buddy. But let's not make him a holy God. Let's not work out our salvation with fear and trembling. 
we don't expect God to really do anything anyway. So we just kind of make up what we want to. Well, the fourth thing, and then I'm going to close. The fourth reason I believe that it's possible to do life as a believer without the presence of God is we assume, when we assume, God wants what we want. We assume that God wants what we want. I'm a Christian, and I got a good bump on the head, so I've read the Bible. And, uh, and I, just, I just know what God wants, and so my prayers are telling God what he needs to do next. My prayers are all about just giving direction to him. And then when he doesn't do what I suggested, well, then I'm disappointed with God, and I'm going to write a book about it. We assume God wants what we want. In verse 5, it says, And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Here's Moses on the mountain, 40 days, 40 nights. He is getting the directions that's going to allow the presence of God to come among his people. He's getting the design for the tabernacle, reflection of a heavenly space that's being brought down to earth. And it's not just going to be a thin place between the seen and the unseen. It's going to be an actual opening between the seen and unseen where the very presence of God can come and dwell among his people and the people won't be destroyed by that. They didn't wait for that. They didn't wait for his directions for worship. They developed an idol. They built an altar. They started sacrificing to this idol. And when the word play is used there, you need to understand that's sexual activity. That same word is used to describe Isaac and Rebekah in Genesis 26. It is, it is the intimacy between a husband and wife. And, and so these people, when it says they rose up to play, can you imagine people who are to be holy because he is holy are acting out sexual license? doing whatever they want to do, doing whatever feels good because this is our God. He really doesn't care. I mean, all my sins, I'm a sinner anyway. All my sins have been forgiven at the cross. What does it matter whether I live a life that pleases him with what I say or what I do? I can just do whatever I want to. I can blow my top, live in a way I want, do whatever I want to do. David Wilkerson once said that the devil's goal and what, what happened here with the people of God is the devil wants to take the fight out of you. The devil wants to take fight, the fight out of you. He wants to you to become so discouraged in your battle with sin that you just quit. You just give up. Dancing before the golden calf. The people didn't really seem to understand that this was a false representation of God. They felt they could perform immoral acts before a golden calf. They did not feel that way when there was fire on the mountain. But they thought they could do it with a golden calf. In our society today, and I fear even in our churches, people are dancing before the golden calf. You can watch immoral entertainment and believe that it's okay with God. But you can't do that with God, but you can with a golden calf. It's not okay to watch nudity before God, but you can before the golden calf. You can't speak profanity before God, but you can before the golden calf. 
You can't yell and scream at your wife or your kids before God, but you can before the golden calf. You can't cheat on a test before a living God, but you can before the golden calf. You can't lie or spread lies before God, but you can before the golden calf. You getting the idea? When you and I live without reference to a holy God, and we just live the way we want to, you can call yourself a Christian, but you're just dancing before a golden calf. You're just doing what you want to do before a God that you've made up, and you're not listening to the truth. God wants you to know him, but the only way to know him is through revelation, not intellectualism, not speculation, not pragmatism, not humanism, none of these things that these people were doing that we've studied, but only through revelation. And God's revelation is his word. God's revelation is his word. And what he has revealed is what you and I are desperate to know about. He wants you to know him, and through his spirit and his word, you can. Tonight, if you've never known God, he provided a way for you through Jesus Christ to know him. By sending his son on the cross, he dealt with your sin. The one thing that separates you from a holy God. And when a person puts their trust in Jesus who died for their sins, that holy God sends his Holy Spirit to come and live inside you. Is that your desire tonight? Would you like a holy God to change you? Create a thirst in you to be different. Create in you a desire to change and to grow. If that's your desire tonight, just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. It's a time of response. It's part of our worship. It's an opportunity for you to say yes to his invitation to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And I want to invite you to come. I'll be here. There'll be other pastors here. We'll be happy to talk with you about how a person comes to know God. And then, brother or sister in Christ, how seriously are you pursuing your knowledge of him? How seriously do you take his word and what he says? We say we believe the Bible. I think it was John Wesley's mother said, you not only need to believe it, you need to behave it. And how serious are you about taking God's word and applying it to your daily life? Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking to us always through your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here and that you are a Holy Spirit. And we want to be so sensitive to you. So when you prompt us and you convict us and you speak to our hearts, we want to be as tender-hearted as we can be. Stir up in us, Lord, a hunger and a thirst that only you can fill. Stir up in us a desire that only you can meet. Create in us a longing to be refreshed by the presence of God. And may we as your people share that together. As we respond to you in these moments, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand with me?